0: et bienvenue. Welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 20, Memoirs of Paris. I'm going to take six authors, ranging from the 17th century right up to our own century, who lived in Paris, loved living in Paris, and wrote about it very memorably. I hope you'll enjoy their very esoteric takes on the city that they all loved. Perhaps you'll even feel inspired to go off and find one or more of the books and read the whole thing. So without further ado, Let's kick off with Madame de Sévigny, born in 1626, resident most of her life in Paris, with a married daughter living in the South, to whom she wrote very regularly, and often to whom she explained the latest gossip, and from whom we can glean all sorts of information about the social life in a certain echelon of Parisian society. She lived, lucky thing, in Place des Vosges, one of my very favourite squares in Paris, at the Hotel de Carnavalet a building which today is in fact a museum of French history, well worth a visit. And from her diaries, we get lots about the daily life of the well-to-do, the operas, the balls. We hear about the new and the exciting. She drinks coffee, she tries chocolate, both of these things very new to France in the 17th century. And we also get lots and lots of stuff about her family and her friends, and all written up in her very own particular style which H.T. Barnwell, who translated her letters into English, described as follows. The hallmarks of her writing are spontaneity coupled with elegance, conciseness and directness, often to the point of abruptness. Just to start with an idea of the sort of life she lived, here's an extract from her diary entry on the 5th of February, 1674, in which she's describing her plans for the day. I am going to a little opera by Moliere. Itier's father-in-law, It's being sung at Pellissaris. The music is perfect. Monsieur le Prince, Monsieur le Duc, and the Duchess will be there. From there, I shall perhaps go to supper at Gourville's with Madame de Lafayette, Monsieur le Duc, Madame de Tiange, and Monsieur de Vivonne, to whom people are saying good-bye, as he is going away tomorrow. If this party is cancelled, I shall go and see Madame de Chaun. I have had the most pressing invitation from the Lady of the House, and from Cardinals de Retz and Bouillon, who made me promise to go. So she's out and about in high society Paris, meeting the people who are making history and telling us all about them. It's very human too, so here she is, for example, describing a certain Madame d'Orclore who was a great beauty of the day, a fact which didn't go down too well with all the other beauties. This makes the beauties there so terribly jealous that it has been decided out of spite that she will not be invited to the after-supper gatherings which are gay and gallant, as you know. In just a few lines after that, here she is on a quarrel between two guests at an event she went to, the Prince d'Arcourt and someone called Lafayard. They're bickering about how much money somebody else possesses. Quote, The Prince remarked that the Chevalier de gromont had his pockets full of money a few days ago and called to witness Lafayard, who said it was not so and that he had not a bean. I tell you he had. I say he had not. Keep quiet, Lafayette. I shall do nothing of the sort. Thereupon the prince threw a plate at his head, the other threw a knife. Both of them missed. Someone came between them and made them embrace. In the evening they spoke to each other at the Louvre as if nothing had happened. We get an insight into her own personality, on the topic of money in fact, from a letter that she wrote very early in 1669 to tell a friend that her daughter was going to get married. And this is how she sums up what sort of a catch the girl has made. Quote, he is not the best-looking boy, but one of the most honourable men in the kingdom. He is Monsieur de Crignon, whom you have known for a long time. All his wives have died in order to make way for your cousin, and even, by some extraordinary kindness, his father and son, so that, as he is richer than he ever has been, and, by virtue of his rank, property and personal qualities, a man after our own hearts, we are not haggling with him as people usually do. But it isn't all trivia. There's plenty of sadness too. As, for example, in June 1693, when she's writing about the last days of her very good friend, Madame de Lafayette. She says elsewhere that illness and sadness are all too frequent visitors in her life. And here she reminds us that it was the fate of many people, even the well-off, to die miserably at home. And also, how much less was known about anything medical in those days. This is her description of what was wrong with her friend. One of her kidneys was quite withered away and had a stone in it, and the other was purulent. There is never much hope of a cure for that. She has two polypi in her heart, and its point was shriveled up. Was that not enough to give her those fits of depression of which she used to complain? Her bowels were hard and full of wind like a balloon, and she was always complaining of colic. She goes on to explain what caused her death at least as far as she understood it. It was caused by the largest of those foreign bodies in her heart. It stopped her circulation, and at the same time struck at all her nervous system, so that she was unconscious for four days, during which she lay very ill. So you can see that really all of life is there, and if you want an enjoyable romp through high society in 17th century Paris, I don't think there's anyone better than Madame de Sévigny to accompany you. Going to leap on now to the twentieth century and talk about a book which in fact I have quoted already, A Moveable Feast by Ernest Hemingway. All about his life as an impoverished writer in Paris just starting out. He says right at the end, quote, This is how Paris was in the early days, when we were very poor and very happy. You may recall a couple of quotes from earlier episodes, about the day he was writing in the Montparnasse Cafe, and the first time he called into Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company bookshop. And the whole thing gives a very particular picture of that time and that place. Here he is, for example, describing the end of the day in the Dome Café, when he's gone to gather together with lots of the people he knows. There were models who had worked until the light was gone, and there were writers who had finished a day's work, for better or for worse, and there were drinkers and characters, some of whom I knew, and some that were only for decoration. There are lots of moments in the book when he bumps into very famous authors and painters. James Joyce, for example, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ezra Pound, Gertrude Stein, T.S. Eliot. They're all there. So just as an example, I'm going to look at the chapter when he met Ford Maddox Ford. He starts by describing the café. Quote, The Closerie des Lilas was the nearest good café when we lived in the flat over the sawmill at 113 rue Notre-Dame-des-Champs and it was one of the best cafes in Paris. It was warm inside in the winter, and in the spring and fall it was very fine outside, with the tables under the shade of the trees, on the side where the statue of Marshal Ney was, and the square, regular tables under the big awnings along the boulevard. He describes quite a few of the regular customers there, elderly men wearing red Légion d'Honneur ribbons, a couple of people he thinks might be professors from the Académie Française, A mix of people ordering drinks, coffees, infusions, some talking together, some reading papers and periodicals, which the café made available. But on this particular evening, he met his friend, Ford Maddox Ford. I was sitting at a table outside of the Lila, watching the light change on the trees and the buildings and the passage of the great slow horses of the outer boulevard. The door of the café opened behind me, and to my right, a man came out and walked to my table. "'Oh, here you are,' he said. "'It was Ford Maddox Ford,' as he called himself then, "'and he was breathing heavily and holding himself as upright "'as an ambulatory, well-clothed, upended hogshead. "'May I sit with you?' he asked, sitting down, "'and his eyes, which were a washed-out blue under colourless lids and eyebrows, "'looked out at the boulevard. "'They have a rather strange conversation about what's a gentleman "'and what's a cad and what's a bounder. "'Ford seems to know these things, and he's explaining them to Hemingway.' A gentleman, Ford explained, will always cut a cad. I took a quick drink of brandy. Would he cut a bounder? I asked. It would be impossible for a gentleman to know a bounder. Then you can only cut someone you've known on terms of equality, I pursued. Naturally. It's decreed, for example, that Ezra Pound isn't a gentleman, or as Ford puts it, of course not, he's an American. Well, okay. wonders Hemingway. What about Henry James? Hmm, very nearly. This goes on for a while. Randy's a drunk, other authors are described and categorised, and then the evening comes to an end. Ford leaves, and Hemingway goes back to some other rather Parisian pursuits. Quote, I walked over to the kiosk and bought a paris Sport Complet, the final edition of the afternoon racing paper, with the results at Auteuil, and the line on the next day's meeting at Angers. The waiter Emile, who had replaced Jean on duty, came to the table, to see the results of the last race at Auteuil Paris in a similar era was very differently described by George Orwell in his book Down and Out in Paris and London published in 1933 the first half is an autobiographical account of his life as a plongeur a dishwasher in a Paris in various cafes in 1928 1929 slightly strange occupation for somebody who'd been to Eton and then on to service in the Indian Imperial Police in Burma, but Orwell threw himself into it, greedy for new experiences and finding out about all the sides of life that he knew nothing about. second half of the book, by the way, continues in the same vein when he's in London, but the first half gives a really intriguing picture of living in Paris in the late 1920s in poverty. He arrives absolutely penniless but then eventually manages to get himself a first job in a Paris café. Not as a waiter, nothing that heady. He starts off as a plongeur, a washer-upper, and general kitchen dog's body. A mad and frantic job in which he calculated that he probably ran about 15 miles a day, just around the restaurant, to everyone's beck and call. It was, as he said, astonishingly hard work. Here's a little insight. One has to leap to and fro between a multitude of jobs. It's like sorting a pack of cards against the clock. You are, for example, making toast. When bang, down comes a service lift with an order for tea, rolls and three different kinds of jam. And simultaneously, bang, down comes another demanding scrambled eggs, coffee and grapefruit. You run to the kitchen for the eggs and to the dining room for the fruit, going like lightning so as to be back before your toast burns. And having to remember about the tea and coffee besides half a dozen other orders that are still pending. And at the same time, some waiter is following you and making trouble about a lost bottle of soda water, and you are arguing with him. It needs more brains than one might think. If you plan ever to eat in a Parisian café or restaurant again, you might find some of what he writes a bit troubling. He makes quite a thing of the difference between out front, with the spotless tablecloths, little flowers, civilised atmosphere, and what you can only describe as the filth behind the scenes. I like to think that health and safety is on top of these things these days, but anyway, here's Behind the Scenes in a Paris Café in the late 1920s. There was no time to sweep the floor till evening, and we slithered about in a compound of soapy water, lettuce leaves, torn paper and trampled food. A dozen waiters with their coats off, showing their sweaty armpits, sat at the table mixing salads and sticking their thumbs into cream pots. The room had a dirty, mixed smell of food and sweat. Everywhere in the cupboards behind the piles of crockery were squalid stores of food that the waiters had stolen. There were only two sinks and no washing basin, and it was nothing unusual for a waiter to wash his face in the water in which clean crockery was rinsing. But the customers saw nothing of this. There were lots of little incidents told, and just as a flavour... Here's one last one about what happened when, horror, a customer ordered something which they didn't actually have out the back. It starts with the French word débrouillard, which means term for somebody who can just manage stuff. OK, quote. Débrouillard is what every plongeur wants to be called. A débrouillard is a man who, even when he's told to do the impossible, will se débrouiller, get it done somehow. One of the kitchen plongeurs at the Hotel X, a German, "'was well known as a débrouillard. "'One night an English lord came to the hotel, "'and the waiters were in despair, "'for the lord had asked for peaches, "'and there were none in stock. "'It was late at night, and the shops were shut. "'Leave it to me,' said the German. "'He went out, and in ten minutes he was back with four peaches. "'He had gone into a neighbouring restaurant and stolen them. "'That is what is meant by a débrouillard. "'The English lord paid for the peaches at twenty francs each.' Another book which I really enjoyed is Adam Gopnik's Paris to the Moon, published in 2000, about the years he spent living in Paris as a writer with his wife and young son. There are nice little descriptions of bits of Paris that he fell in love with, for example this one. Paris was the site of the most beautiful commonplace civilization there has ever been. Cafés, brasseries, parks, lemons on trays, dappled light on bourgeois boulevards, department stores with skylights and windows like doors, everywhere you look. And lots of little insights about various things that he came across in daily life and in the course of his job. He went, for example, one day to a Valentino fashion show. It was on a July morning, quite cold for the time of year, and he was amused to find that, quote, the ladies fanned as they always do in the gasping heat of July at the collections. A nice little aside, I feel, that makes it clear that this event is not really to do with what's actually happening, it's a ritual. It'll be done as it's always been done, whether that's suitable or not. And you get an insight, too, into the little bits of Paris that he loves best, what he describes, for example, as the most beautiful walk in the world. Quote, Up the Rue de Seine, then right, through the little unprepossessing arch, a hole punched in a wall that gives no promise at all that it opens right onto the esplanade of the greatest of Grand Siècle buildings, the Institut de France, Mazarin's great curved library, topped by its perfect dome. I'm sure he did that walk lots of times, but he writes quite memorably about the time he did it in nineteen ninety eight, just after France had won the World Cup. A man wrapped in a tricolor was relieving himself against the front wall of the Institut de France, discreetly, with maximum esprit de corps, but still relieving himself. Someone was selling beer out of a cooler, violating about twelve hundred French laws in the act. Kids were singing, men were grabbing at girls, presumably with a memory of 1944. That's what I like about his writing. He notices what's happening, but he can always put it in the context of Paris, of Parisian history. And you feel you're in the company of an expert. He's very good too on the everyday, so learning to shop and cook Parisian style, for example. Parisians don't shop in supermarkets. Actually, there aren't many in central Paris, as he explains. No, no, they go to individual shops and markets, so he does the same, and he describes the rounds he makes, from the nice butcher on the Rue de Verneuil, and the expensive but excellent vegetable shop on the Rue de Grenelle, the Rue du Bac's fish shop, cheese shop, and a bottle of wine will be needed. So he pops into a shop called Le Repaire de Bacchus, where, of course, being France, what he is planning to cook and eat must be thoroughly discussed before any wine can be chosen. He'll choose one of his favourite patisseries as well to buy some dessert and then he'll go home to cook it all. He's quite amusing talking about how after a day of planning, shopping, chopping, roasting and eating he always thinks, that was a lot of work, I shan't be doing that again. But the very next day he gets up, perhaps with the recipe in mind, and can't resist. And he's very much learnt the French recipes. Quote, I have learnt to make 50 or 60 different dinners, roasted poulet de bresse, Blanquette de veau à vanille. Carré d'agneau. That must be a lamb dish, as is, in fact, gigot de sept heures. I don't know what the 7 hours are. Is that perhaps how long you cook it? Anyway, he goes on. I can clafoutis an apple, poach a pear, peel a chestnut, big dishes, big food. You are living the good life in Paris, right alongside Adam Gopnik. Someone else who went to Paris and wrote about it is Lauren Elkin, whose book, Flaneur's, was published in 2016. It's subtitled Women Walk the City and there are nine chapters on different cities, three of which are on Paris. A real mix of things she saw while wandering, books that she'd read that it made her think about, authors she knew to have lived in Paris and what they made of it. The real approach of Flanné sort of wandering without a clear goal in mind. So the three chapters on Paris are entitled Cafés, Protest, and neighbourhood, and all three take a very different approach. In the chapter on cafés, she explores the close links between the writers who've spent time in Paris and the cafés in which they love to do their writing. She talks about other writers, Hemingway, Jean Rhys, for example, and about her own experience of becoming a writer while working in Parisian cafés. She reminisces about reading A Moveable Feast herself, said this book was just different from anything she'd read before. It showed her a young American writer in left bank Paris sitting in cafes and learning to be a writer. She enjoyed his explanations of what makes a cafe good to work in and his description of tucking into a cafe au lait, a rum St. James, a dozen oysters and half a carafe of white wine all the while writing a short story and looking round at the others in the cafe. She began to realise as he had done Six decades earlier, that this really was an ideal place to work, Quote, the happy intersection of the cafe with all its stimulants, the work, and the random people the city brought across my path, gave me the ideal context in which to write. A page or two later, having decided she's becoming a writer, she identifies also with Jean Reese, who described her time in the city and the day she went to a stationer's shop and stocked up on lots of different coloured pens and some black exercise books. And Lauren Elkins identifying with Jean Reese and remembering that she had written about her new stationery, quote, "'The stiff black covers were shiny, "'the spine and the edges were red, "'and the pages were ruled. "'I bought several of those. "'I didn't know why, just because I liked the look of them. "'I got a box of J-Nibs, the sort I liked, "'an ordinary pen holder, "'bottle of ink, and a cheap inkstand.' Now that old table won't look so bare, I thought. So all the time, this mix of the city of Paris, the writers who've been there before her, and Lauren Elkin herself becoming a writer. Chapter on Protest explores the idea of that very Parisian activity, protesting, drawing links between the work of George Sand, for example, who wrote Describing the 1848 Revolution, and bringing it up to date with experiences that Elkin herself had in Paris. She takes a moment, for example, to tell us what she's learnt about marches in Paris and where they take place. Quote, Left-wing marches begin and end at places with revolutionary or republican significance, like Bastille or Nation or République, mostly in the east of Paris. Occasionally they'll snake along the left bank and end in front of the Assemblée Nationale. The right-wing marches, on the other hand, begin or end in the moneyed quarters of the Seventh or the Latin Church At Maubert Mutualité, in the third. She describes in some detail how she went on her first Manif, short for Manifestation, or demonstration, on the 29th of January 2009. She was teaching in Paris at the time, and explains that this demonstration was unusual because it was the first one in years which hadn't involved just the students, but their teachers as well. Both groups were equally outraged by the new reforms to the university system, which had a tendency to favour research in the sciences over that in the humanities. Teachers and students gathered with their placards in the Place de la Bastille, where they waited for ages until all the other groups who were going to join in started to arrive. Everything took ages. It was freezing cold. This is how she describes it. Hours and hours later, we had still only moved about half a mile up the Boulevard Beaumarchais when it started getting dark, and I decided it was time to head home. The sky deepened from blue to purple as some kids at the back began to set off flares, filling the air with smoke, creating a red glow around the protesters and turning the lamp posts around the boulevard into a string of suns burning in the haze. A pile of poster boards was set alight as I walked back through the Place de la Bastille, with a group solemnly gathered around it, holding flags and banners aloft. The smoke rose up around the July column and the red haze intensified. I took a photograph and it was as if the 19th century had appeared like a ghost on the film. So again, this mix of literature and history and current experience all makes for a very interesting read, and a book in which you'll get many takes on Paris that I don't think you'd get anywhere else. And finally then, to my last choice for this episode, a book published in 2009 by the American chef and author David Liebewitz, and called The Sweet Life in Paris. Lots of little short chapters on many aspects of living in Paris, which he did while he was researching and writing cookery books. A good number of recipes too, about 50 I think. Very French things if you want to make tarte tatin or macaroons or yves flottantes, or even, go all Proustian, why don't you, some Madeleine, then the recipe for all those things are in the book. As too is a lot of text about all kinds of aspects of living in the city at the beginning of the 21st century to give uh, some sample chapter headings, which will give a taste of what's in there. Dining like a Parisian. Grave Grief, so another one about living in the city where there are constantly strikes and demonstrations. There's one on the complexities of ordering coffee because there's so many options. And another about his experience working as a stagiaire, so just someone on work experience in one of Paris's very poshest chocolate shops in the Boulevard Saint-Germain. They're all very readable. In one chapter, entitled Fancying le Fromage, he describes going to a dinner party with two great cooks as hosts, and he waxes very eloquent about the beauty of the cheese board that came out at the end of the meal. On it was a sublime, oozing-ripe camembert de Normandie, wafting its sweet barnyard fragrance in my direction. Next to it was a squat, ash-rubbed cushion of chèvre, its snow-white creaminess peeking through the grey smudges blanketing the surface. I couldn't wait to lop off a slab of the nutty Conté, a top cheese in my book, made from cows who've spent their days leisurely grazing their way across mountains in the Jura. And to complete the picture of perfection, there was a wedge of cave-ripened Roquefort, mottled throughout with its much-revered fuzzy green mould. All was simply arranged on a cheeseboard, as they should be. No fruit or leaves or anything superfluous, just cheeses, presented in their exquisite perfection. So, first of all then, a homage to the perfect cheese board, followed by a rather mood-flattening description of what happened on this particular evening when an American guest, just on a brief visit to Paris, who hadn't realised how things were done, decided that it would be better if the cheese were cut up, grabbed a knife and, with a few deft strokes of the knife, he pounced on the cheeses and started hacking away, cutting them all into little cubes, as if they were going to be served with frilled toothpicks at a gallery opening, alongside jugs of mountain chablis. In a matter of moments, he'd managed to decimate what had taken several generations of cheesemakers to perfect. We all sat in stunned silence, horrified by the desecration. Our cheese course was ruined. And then finally, a second extract on a completely different note, from a chapter towards the beginning of the book, entitled The Most Important Words to Know in Paris. So he describes being on a shopping trip in Paris for anything really, gloves or shoelaces or a battery, maybe just a baguette. You go into the shop, you can't see what you want, so you ask the salesperson, assuming as you might do if you're, I think in this case, an American or perhaps a Brit, that that person is there to help you and that you are the all-important customer. Quote, in lieu of a response, you are met with a reception glaciale a frozen reception. And on your way out, you wonder, why are Parisians so nasty? It's probably because you've insulted them deeply, which you might think is strange since all you did was ask a question. But that's the problem. And he goes on to explain that whatever shop you go into, what you really must remember to do always, every time, is greet the person that you're going to speak to first. Bonjour, monsieur, or bonjour, madame, before you dream of asking them anything else. You do that when you're getting into a lift, You do it in a restaurant, in a shop, anywhere. Otherwise, they will find that you are very rude. So there are lots of little snippets of French culture to be found in The sweet Life in Paris, and a few handy tips if you don't know the ways of the French as well you ought to. It slips along. It's a very easy-to-read book, which I thoroughly recommend. So then, six writers, six very different memoirs of Paris, all of them readable, all of them chock full of things to learn about the city. All of them definitely worth a read. That's more or less it for this week. Next week, I'm going to continue the theme of books about Paris, but I'm going to look at the sort of books from which you can pick up some history. I'm going to start with the French Revolution and look at two or three takes on that, for example, at the Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And then we'll work our way through books, be they history or fiction, there's a mix on such incidents as the Dreyfus Affair, and the Second World War, and hopefully give out some more reading suggestions for places to look if you want to know more about Paris. I hope you'll join me for that. For the moment, though, thank you very much for listening. Merci, and goodbye until next week. Au revoir.